0: We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah 14, Rabbi Yochanan HaSandler Omer, Rabbi Yochanan the Sandler says, Kal Every assembly that is dedicated for the sake of heaven, sofa will have an enduring effect. V'she'en but one that is not for the sake of heaven, Ain sofa time, it will not endure, it will not have an enduring effect. So this is an interesting personality teaching us this Mishnah because we're told his name, Rabbi Yochanan, but then he's told, we're told Hasandler, which most likely means that he was a shoemaker because the word sandal or sandal uh, means a shoe and he was a sandal maker. So it is interesting that one of the great sages of yesteryear of the Mishnah, someone who was a student of Rabbi Akiva and someone who's mentioned Several times, not uh not the most mentioned named in the Talmud of the Mishnah, but is mentioned periodically throughout the Mishnah, we know that uh, he's labeled Rabbi Yochanan. Which Rabbi Yochanan? Oh, the one that sells shoes, the one that has the shoe store on the corner of the street. So it is interesting that the Torah's like maybe one of the first lessons we can learn from him is that you don't need to be someone who is a thousand percent dedicated to Torah with no worldly occupation in order to become a great Torah scholar. He became a great Torah scholar. He is eternally memorialized in this Mishnah, and he was someone who sold shoes. He incidentally was born in Alexandria at the time when that was a major center of Jewish living. He is also buried in Meiron near the gravesite of Rabbi Shimon bar another student of Rabbi Akiva, and maybe one of the most significant Jews from that era. And he tells us that there's two kinds of gatherings. There's two kinds of assemblies. There's an assembly that's done for the sake of heaven, and that, in the end, will endure. And there is a gathering that's not for the sake of heaven, and that one will not necessarily endure in the end. So the simple understanding of this Mishnah as characterized by many of the commentators, Rashi, Urbina Yona, etc., When well, people got together, and they got together to do a mission, whatever it may be, and there's uncertainty whether or not that mission will be successful. And here we're given a pledge. Here we're given a promise. Here we're given a prediction. If this meeting, if this assembly, if the intention behind it is noble, then it will succeed. If the intention behind it is corrupt, ultimately, it will fail. And he is precise in his words. He doesn't say that there will be immediate success for the convention, for the assembly, for the sake of heaven. In the end, it will endure. When all is said and done, it will be clear that it will be successful. Similar on the flip side, if there is a meeting, if there's an assembly, if there's a convention that's not on the sake of heaven, it may have initial success, But ultimately, it will fail. And the commentaries add that this is not just talking about an assembly that the objective is a positive objective. Rather, it's talking about the attitude behind the assembly. We can have people getting together and we want to do a mitzvah. But why do we want to do the mitzvah? We want to do the mitzvah because we'll get honor. We'll get publicity. People will think we're righteous. People will think we're kind and generous. And in that event, even though the objective is noble, we're doing a mitzvah, but because it's not done for the sake of heaven. What does it mean for the sake of heaven? For the sake of heaven means that our motivation, our intention, everything behind what we're doing, we're ultimately doing it for God. And for God to the exclusion of any other goal. And if there's any other goal that's mixed in, that's going to erode from the sincerity of our pursuit and we're not going to have this guarantee. We don't know it's going to be successful. If we come to a meeting and we're trying to do something good and no one is saying, oh, I'm going to get honor. Oh, I'm going to be praised and lauded by my friends. Everyone's going to look up to me. I'll be a hero. If no one has that attitude – and everyone's saying, I want to just contribute towards the greater good, to doing the will of God, towards bringing his influence in this world, then it's going to be successful. And by the way, I saw really interesting. One of the commentaries, he explains this in a way that could be used as an effective strategy for meetings, even business meetings. He says that when people get together, the more people you have, the more opinions, and every person has their own way of saying things. And necessarily, whenever there's a meeting, there's going to be somewhat of a clash, somewhat of a conflict. Everyone has a different perspective. Everyone has different temperaments. One person wants X. Person B actually loathes that suggestion. And everyone is trying to push their agenda. Everyone has their way of seeing things and tries to force that upon everyone else. And that just causes a cocktail of conflict. So what's the solution? The solution is that if there's something that unites them, if there is a shared unity and purpose, and like this Mishnah says, they're trying to do the will of God. They want to love God. They want to fear God. Everyone is focused on the same things that unites them, and that's going to allow one person to see the goodness of the suggestion of the other person. It's going to create like a team atmosphere, and that's going to yield positive results. The meaning is going to be successful. Now, in the accompanying teaching of this Mishnah found in, in Avastar it goes through a historic example of this taking place There's two times in the Torah where an entire nation gathers together at a specific spot to achieve a specific purpose. And one of them is in the book of Genesis. And that is, of course, the Tower of Babel story. Everyone gathers together, all the nations of the world, all the nations of the region. And they have a mission. They want to make a tower and they want to triumph over God. And of course, that is a total failure. Not only do they not have success in their endeavor, but the unity itself gets dissolved and all these people who were united are now dispersed in different lands with different languages. There's now barriers separating the two. And what the commentaries explain here is that when there's a union to achieve a certain goal, there's the union, and then there's the goal. And here we're told in this Mishnah, not only will the goal not succeed, but the union itself will dissolve. So it's it's more than just one convention, one assembly will be successful in their mission, whereas a second assembly will fail. The second assembly itself, the assembly, the union, the unity will dissolve. That's the first example. They gathered together, Not for the sake of heaven. In fact, quite the contrary. And their union and certainly their mission was unsuccessful. And then, of course, in the book of Exodus, we have the Jewish nation gathering at Mount Sinai, a nation united like one man with one soul to receive the Almighty's Torah. And you know what? That mission still endures today. Of course, there were hiccups along the way. It wasn't always pleasant. You look back at Jewish history, there were some problems, there were some bumps in the road. But we are still here. And the commentaries quote a verse in the end of the Torah, all the way in Parsha's HaAzinu, second to last, the penultimate Parsha of the Torah, where the verse says, I will bring about all my... Arrows against the Jewish people, which is, again, it's one of those parts of the Torah that's really hard to read because it talks about the Almighty avenging, so to speak, his honor against us. But the way the Talmud derives that verse, all my arrows and my quiver will be used up, but the nation will still endure. Yes, our people have had somewhat of a tortured history, but you know what? We're still standing today maybe stronger than ever. And I think there's a there's a deep insight here. I heard this idea recently. You know, if you think about it, the Tower of Babel, could you think of a more convoluted plan? A nation says, we're going to build a huge tower and we're going to triumph over God. It seems to be the most outrageous suggestion ever. We read it and it's very hard for us to understand what's really going on. Typically, we think, you know, these are a bunch of primitive people Primitive pagans, what do they know about anything? They're so unsophisticated, they're so unintelligent, they actually think that man can triumph over God. That's the simple reading. I heard something really fascinating. You think about these two conventions. We have one at Sinai, Jewish people receive the Torah, and one in the Tower of Babel. Now, the Jewish people, we study Torah, of course, the Torah that we got at Sinai, but the majority of Torah study in the world is actually more associated with Babel than with Sinai, because, of course, in Babel, in Babylonia, the Jewish people, obviously, this is a mission not just of one person, this is generations, but that is where the Babylonian Talmud was written, And isn't it amazing that the two venues where we kind of got Torah are both here presented as places where there was a gathering. And one of them was a gathering of the Jewish people that was successful. One of them was a gathering of these ancient pagans, a total flop, a total failure. Yet that same place, that's where we actually coalesced to write down the Talmud. And most of the study that we do today is oriented around the Babylonian Talmud isn't that interesting so what i heard was if you think about it when you open up the talmud you find the name of this rabbi who said x and the name of the other rabbi who said y and they're arguing and they're arguing and all these rabbis are arguing it's like you you're you're peeking in into this arena where a bunch of sages are screaming at each other that's the experience that you get. Certainly if you just, you know, take a peek at any, any page of Talmud, that, that's what it sounds like. You just read it like, what? He says, he says back and forth. And we know one of the hallmarks of the Babylonian Talmud is the fact that the Almighty is taking the Torah and giving it to us. So much so that there's a famous teaching in the Talmud that talks about the sage is having a debate. And there was the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. And he was one of the great sages of the era. And he was convinced that the ruling was one thing. And the rest of the sages said the ruling was the opposite. And they had this standoff. And Rabbi Eleazar was so convinced that he was right, he started to marshal all these miracles to prove his case. And he says, well, if I'm right, let the heavenly voice declare that I'm right. And the heavenly voice declared that he was right. And the sages were not impressed. They said to him, well... Sorry, that's not admissible in the court of law. That's not sufficient evidence. Even if the heavens agree with you, it doesn't matter. We disagree with you. And then he says, well, okay, if I'm right, let the walls of the house of scholarship, let them cave in. And they start caving in. Ah, not enough proof. Let the river start flowing in the opposite direction. Not proof. Let this tree uproot itself and replant itself a 100 feet yonder. Not a proof. And that's, of course, the story that is told in the Talmud in the book of Bav page 59b. As a result of this story, Rabbi Eliezer is ostracized, he's put into uh, excommunication, and kind of Jewish history has to readjust at that juncture because the greatest sage in the land is persona non grata. But the Talmud goes on to say that one of the sages met Elijah the prophet, which is not uncommon. These sages are like angels. They can meet Elijah, no problem. And what do you do when you meet Elijah? You ask him, what's up? What's happening? Not what's happening here. What's happening in heaven? Because Elijah, he's someone who is seamlessly transitioning between the heavenly realm and here. And he can give us a window to what's actually happening in heaven. So the sage meets Elijah and says to him, what's happening in heaven? And Elijah tells him, the Almighty is saying as follows, Nitzchuni banai, Nitzchuni banai. My sons have triumphed over me. My sons have triumphed over me. What this is telling us is that there is an element of, of, of Torah jurisprudence that says that the Torah was in the heavens and was given to us and it was taken away from the heavens and given here and the ruling of the sanhedrin the ruling of the majority that wins even in opposition to the will of god and that is most found in ba- in babel and the ancient pagans of yore they said hey there's some there's some power in this place this place this place of the, this babel place this is the one place in the world where man can triumph over god and therefore they said, huh, let's take that to its logical conclusion. Let's triumph over God in everything. And we're told the reason why they failed is because their intention wasn't noble. What they were trying to do, again, this is a very cabalistic idea, what they were trying to do is the same thing that the great sages were doing. They were triumphing over God. How is it possible that Rabbi Eliezer has God on his side and loses the argument? Well, that's a, that's a certain power that's given to us via the Torah and manifested in Babel. And we're told the reason why whatever they were trying to do, and again, it's a very complicated thing. We read it. We don't understand it. Got to look at all the commentaries and all the, all the Kabbalistic literature on the subject. Whatever they were trying to do was very similar to what the sages in Babel were trying to do. And the problem was there was some element of their intention that wasn't noble. They weren't doing it for the sake of doing the right thing. They were doing the wrong thing. And consequently, it was a total abject failure. Not only did they not succeed in triumphing over God, but their unity itself was dispersed and scattered throughout the land. Now, I saw a very novel interpretation of this Mishnah, of a union that is for the sake of heaven, succeeding, whereas a union for the sake of, not for the sake of heaven, not succeeding, failing. I found a novel interpretation in the Chassid Yavits, one of the commentators on Perk A uh, Very similar idea is actually found in the Ruach Haim, another one of the great commentators on this book. In the previous Mishnah, we discovered an idea, a very powerful idea, a very empowering idea, also a very scary idea, that every deed that a person does spawns, eternal consequences you do a mitzvah you study torah you do kindness you repent you are creating an angel you are creating a spiritual reality that's your advocate in heaven you got this angel on your side and to the degree like we mentioned to the degree of the strength of that particular mitzvah is the power the prowess of that particular angel Conversely, someone, God forbid, does a sin. That too spawns an angel, but not a defending angel, not an advocate, not a defense attorney, but a prosecutor, someone who is going to look out to try to trip you up. Someone's going to try to present your misdeeds in front of God. And what happens after someone dies? Well, the person has to give an accounting for their behavior. And, of course, there's the angels who present all the mitzvahs that you did. Every mitzvah that you did, there's that angel. And that angel is there arguing for your side. And then, of course, on the other side of the room, you'll have all the other angels. And they're also gathering together. But what are they trying to highlight? Not your good deeds, but your misdeeds. And depending upon who wins that battle... That's what happens to you. You know, If we believe that's one of the basic pillars of Jewish faith. We believe that someone has to give an accounting for their behavior, and there's reward for good deeds, and there's punishment for bad deeds. That's one of the basics, one of the 13 principles of faith, the idea of reward and punishment. But here we have two gatherings. There's the gathering for the sake of heaven. That's a reference to all the good angels that are there testifying to your good deeds and standing up for you and defending you, being your advocates. That's one assembly. That's one post-mortem assembly. And then you have the second post-mortem assembly and that's the other angels that are there to highlight your misdeeds. In our Mishnah, it's perhaps an extension of the previous Mishnah. The previous Mishnah talked talking about you creating angels, good and bad ones. Here, those angels are gathered together. There's an assembly for the sake of heaven, that is your good angels and then there's an assembly, now for the sake of heaven, and that's the bad angels there that you created with your sins. And we're told a very heartening thing. The assembly that's for the sake of heaven, the good angels, that will ultimately endure. That will last forever. Reward in heaven is eternal. Whereas the assembly that's not for the sake of heaven, punishment in heaven, that will not endure. That is not eternal. That is temporary. We believe in a concept, and this is a big subject, what happens after you die. Maybe one of the most intriguing subjects there is. But We believe that there's a concept called Gehenim. We're told it was created on day two, and we're given some descriptions about it. It's not uh, maybe the most pleasant reading material to learn about Ganem. But we're told in the Talmud that a person's there for a maximum of 12 months, maximum of a year. And we have speculated together in the past that the reason why a person could be in Ganem in post-mortem purgatory for up to a year, it's because there are 365 potential sins in the Torah each one of them corresponding to one day of the year. And therefore, if a person has committed all the sins, each day of a given year, they're going to face retribution, face punishment, so to speak, face cleansing, face purging of that given sin. And if they do all the sins, well, then they have a whole year to account for it. But what happens after the year is done Well, then they're clean, and they can move on to the more permanent assembly, so to speak, the assembly of the good angels to give them their reward for their good deeds. Now, the Chas is very clear to point out that this is not always true. You have people who sin, and they create angels to prosecute against them. But if someone is themselves a prosecutor, i.e., if someone is inspiring others to sin, then they don't have this guarantee, and they could potentially be punished forever. Separate discussion, but important to mention. Now, just because we're on the subject, there is a, an analogy that I'm fond of on this particular question of what happens after you die. Now, whenever we talk about this, it's very important to give the following disclaimer, and that is that the subject of eschatology, the subject of what happens after you pass, that is one of the most difficult questions to parse out because the Torah is very opaque about it, and the Talmud is almost deliberately going out of its way to mask the answer to those questions, or to the answers to those questions. It's hard to know why other religions make a big deal about really talking about this, about really you know going through the details and really trying to scare people into compliance, and it seems like the Torah does not do that. And there's various answers as to why. Uh, for example, there's a Ramban, that we just read a couple of weeks ago in the parsha, the Ramban says, you know, you look at the Torah. It talks about all the good things that happen to us if we if we do mitzvos, all the bad things that happen to us if we sin. But it doesn't mention, at least not explicitly, it doesn't mention the afterlife. It talks about you'll have a lot of grain and your, your children will live. And you'll want to triumph over your enemies. You'll have peace and prosperity and hegemony and stability, security, a lot of good themes, but they're all rewards in this world. Why does it not mention rewards in the next world when your soul has been removed from your body and you could fully appreciate the reward of your mitzvahs? That is the question that, uh, the Ramban addresses and he gives some answers. He says, for example, well, you have to know how to read the Torah and on a Kabbalistic level, when I talking about grain, it's not really referring to grain. It's referring, to, if you know how to read it, it's, it's like a, the Ramban oftentimes invokes the Kabbalistic layer of the Torah. Maybe it's re- actually referring to the eternal afterlife reward. That's one idea. But he also says something which is, I think, very germane to our subject. He says that... The Torah only tells us things that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Every word in the Torah has to be something; has to be a novel insight. If it's not novel, the Torah should have deleted that word. Can't have any extra words in the Torah. So the Rabban says that it's not a novel idea to realize that we will have an afterlife, because after all, we have a soul. And the soul doesn't die when we die. And the insight, the novel insight is only that someone could potentially lose their eternity. But the fact that someone has eternity, that someone's soul lives on, that someone's soul endures, that is something which is so obvious, you don't need to be told to, to us in the Torah. And you could actually infer it from the fact that people are cut off, so to speak. That tells you that it's possible for someone to lose that. That's the novel insight but of course the default insight is that we merit eternity and unless things go horrifically wrong, we're going to have a soul that lives on after we die. But a good way of thinking about this, I want to share this following analogy. So if you rent a car, let's say you rent a car for 30 days. After 30 days, you have to bring back the car. Back you have to bring the car back, and you have the representative from Avis or Hertz make it the rounds around the car. And it used to be that if there was a tiny nick, you know, just the size of a micro, you need a microscope to look at it. Then they would say, "Okay, well, you got to pay for that. You got to pay for that." And therefore, you have to go when when you rent the car, you got to make sure it's actually perfect because otherwise, they'll invent stuff. But nowadays, what they do is they say, "Well, it's got to be the size of a golf ball." Or it has to be bigger than, you know, a scratch has to be bigger than, you know, two, three inches for it to matter. But anyhow, there is this examination, this post-rental examination of the car to see what is the condition of the car and what do you have to pay potentially to make sure that you return it in the same working order that you received at the beginning of the rental. The Talmud tells us that we are given – A pure, unadulterated soul at birth. Well, its truth is we're given it. We're given it earlier at conception, but at birth, we're told that our mission is to preserve the holiness, the purity of our soul, and make sure it does not become corrupted. It doesn't get sullied. Every sin amounts to the soul getting pinged, the soul getting dirtied, the soul getting sullied tainted, corrupted. And of course, we can repent and and cleanse that. We can do mitzvos and ascend above that. But that's the conflict of our lives. Our soul is pure. It starts off pure. But over the course of our lives, we're faced with constant challenges. We're bombarded with the Yetzirah seductions to potentially sin. And that's going to determine whether or not our soul is going to become impaired, going to become infected. Going to suffer from the effects of sin corrupting the soul. When you return your rental car, it could be in various conditions. If it is totaled, if it has to be brought on a on a truck because it's just falling apart, well, then you have to you gotta start over again. You have to have a new car. That has to be discarded you have to start from scratch. Well, what if? It has some damage, but it's not totally totaled, destroyed. Well, then, okay, you gotta pay for it. And once you pay for it, you're good. Well, what if it has a few little nicks? Maybe those could be ignored, but it's probably a good idea for the rental car company to power wash the car, make sure it's ready, ready to go and perfectly clean. And of course, every once in a while, you'll have someone who takes their rental car to the car wash before they bring it in and they return it in absolute gleaming shape. We bring our soul back to God after we die. And the Almighty is going to make that little circuitous round, so to speak. Let's see what happened. Let's see what happened to this particular soul. And God forbid... If someone totally corrupts their soul, it's unrecognizable. It just looks like a, like a hunk of soul, like a hunk of, of metal that's contorted because it was in a huge accident. You gotta start from scratch. Either potentially you gotta go back to the, back in the ringer, you gotta go through this experience again. Maybe something, again, this is very fringe cases, but maybe there may be, this is a discussion, by the way, in the commentaries. But there may be a possibility for someone to not even give be given a chance to to go through the experience of life again. Maybe, you know, if you bring the rental car back in such destroy conditions, they'll, they'll never rent to you again. You're, you're not worth the risk for the company. Well, what if it's still in working order, but it needs to be repaired a little bit before it can be polished and cleaned and ready to go in the showroom, in the showroom? Well, then it's got to go through some cleansing process. When we talk about Gehenim, certainly in the context of this idea, we're talking about the fact that someone has to rectify, has to cleanse their soul before it can experience any eternal delight in the afterlife. And therefore it has to be power washed. But here we're told it's, it's not permanent, it will not endure this assembly of the angels, not for the sake of heaven. This gathering of all the angels to highlight your sins, that's not forever. That's temporary. You got to power wash, got to clean it out to prepare it for presentation, to prepare it for the eternal experience that it is due. I remember hearing a lecture from someone who said, I really, really hope I'm good enough to make it to hell. I'm good enough to make it to Jehennem. Which to us, you know, sounds a little sacrilegious. But, but in this context, it means someone fulfilled their mission. They have brought back their soul back to God in good enough working condition. It's still salvageable. Their life was a success. And of course, every once in a while, you'll see a tzaddik. You'll see a righteous person that is constantly, meticulously keeping track and overseeing their behavior, making sure that everything they do is okay. they do a sin, everyone does a sin. Right away, they repent for it, and they're always trying to improve. They have this upward trajectory. They're always trying to study more. They're always trying to learn more, always trying to improve. And whenever they trip up, like everyone invariably does, they quickly cleanse it. Talmud tells us if you see a Torah scholar doing a sin by day, don't question him at night. Because you know what? Invariably, that Torah scholar repented for his misdeed. Everyone sins. The problem is when someone doesn't repent. If someone's constantly monitoring themselves, repenting the day before they pass, they could be assured that when they return their proverbial rental car to God, it's going to be in good shape. And maybe they could even forestall the post-mortem power wash, the post-mortem cleansing, because you know what? They power washed it here, they cleansed it here, and they are good to go. And the Chassid Yavitz ends off with Quite an empowering thought. He notes that the Mishnah says if there was an assembly, a convention, a gathering for God, it will endure. And then he says, what if there is a gathering that's not just for God, it's by God. It was made by God, a gathering done by God. And of course, it's the Jewish people. Our nation Was gathered, was made by God. We were strewn throughout Egypt, and the mighty plucked us up and made us and forged us into a single nation. Surely, if a convention for the sake of God is going to endure, surely a convention, a union, an assembly that was actually made by God will endure. Like we said, it's not always going to be easy. It's going to be a rocky road, but ultimately our nation will triumph. And it's kind of amazing. We have this teaching given to us by Rabbi Yochanan, the shoemaker. And there's so much nuance in the short words. If there's a convention assembly for the sake of God, it will endure. If there's a convention not for the sake of God, it will not endure.